You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 179. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and your attention today. I truly appreciate it. It is December 20th, 2023, as of this recording, which means that as a pastor, I am up to my neck right now in translations and writing prayers and preparing for Christmas. This year, it is rather unique, actually, because the fourth Sunday in the season of Advent happens to also fall on Christmas Eve which means I have morning service, evening service, and then Christmas morning service on Monday morning. And so in the stampede, that is Christmas time, where, as I said, I'm translating Old Testament texts from the Hebrew. I'm translating New Testament texts from the Greek. I'm comparing them to medieval texts from the Latin, comparing those to modern translations in English. And then along the way, maybe some German from the Reformation as well. I also take the time to write my own collects and prayers based on primarily my readings of early Anglo-Saxon literature and Christian prayers from the 6th through the 11th century. And I do all that partly because as a pastor, I want to know the text and the best way that I know to study and learn the text is to translate it because in the translation, you have to make choices. Hopefully they're educated choices. Hopefully they are prayerful and guided by God, but nonetheless, choices must be made. There are some words in Hebrew, for example, in the book of Genesis that require very little effort because they are rudimentary primal words with one or two meanings, one or two definitions. But then you get to the Hebrew prophets and then the New Testament and the Greek. And some words will have 12 to 14 different translation choices, depending on syntax and grammar and context. And then when you bring into it other people's translations, Anglo-Saxon monks, medieval monks, modern biblical scholars, German Reformation scholars, you start to engage in a conversation with these men primarily who are long dead now, who themselves wrestled with the text, faithfully attempting to render it as true as possible to the original meaning, which also means then that you need to make yourself a servant, a slave to the original authors and ask what was their intent? What was their meaning? How did they intend for these words to be used? Because I think I might've mentioned it in the episodes on myth, but it is always the temptation of the interpreter, the translator, to project backwards onto history, his or her presuppositions in the present. And the danger is that a medieval monk does not share our worldview. He is as far removed from us as a fourth century BC prophet would be removed from him. These are totally different worlds. In some ways, the medieval monk is closer to the Hebrew prophet than we are because they did actually share an extremely similar worldview and cosmology that we as postmoderns have largely rejected. 
And so it's a dangerous game to play, thinking that translating texts is simple. You just learn the language, you learn how to render the grammar and the syntax in such a way that it's understandable to readers in your context. And that's that. But like I said, that's dangerous because it does great violence to the text. And of course, one of the sins I think of most modernity is that we feel the need to remove the author from the original text and then to interpret the text for ourselves according to our prejudices, our presuppositions. And as a consequence, we clash with our spiritual fathers, with our ancestors, because we're not respecting them and we're not regarding the world in which they lived, the way in which they used language, the way that they interfaced and engaged with the reality. And so all of that is in the background when I'm translating. I don't take it lightly. It's no small thing. It's a very serious activity for me, a, a discipline. But like I said, it engages me in a conversation with people who I greatly respect, who are unfortunately not here to speak with me. And so for myself, the greatest respect that I can show them is to ask the question, why did you choose this word? And what was your intent when you used this word? And how then can I translate that into the vernacular of my hearers in such a way that I don't bastardize the original text. I don't do violence to the author's intention, but also then the art of translating is to render the language and render the text in such a way that my hearers, their ears can gain traction with the words. There are wooden translations, which drive me nuts. They sound like they were translated by accountants who only know numbers and math. But on the other hand, you have paraphrases, which are so far from the original intent and the original language and its definitions as to essentially just be a fairy tale version of the primary text themselves. And so the art of the translator is always serving these two masters, the art and the discipline of the translation. And then you add to it the science of translating, which is there's rules. Like I said, you have to learn the rules of grammar, not only English grammar, but the rules of the grammar of Hebrew or Greek or Latin or Spanish or German or modern English. Early Anglo-Saxon is different than Wycliffe's Bible translation that he published in 1383. These are different worlds. They're different. They're, they're similar languages, but they follow somewhat different rules depending on context depending on region, depending on culture. And so this is one of my passions and I love language. And for me, language is essentially the same as music. And in the same way then that I would interpret a song musically, I feel the same way about language. So that being said, that long winded seven minute introduction to the show that's where my head is at. I'm kind of stuck in translator mode. I've been chained to my desk for the past three days doing this. And so me just talking off the cuff today would be extremely boring for anyone who doesn't care about translating ancient languages or getting to know the authors through their words. So I thought instead what I would do, taking an inspiration actually from a brother of mine, Sam, who also is a Tolkien nerd and also loves medieval texts and loves some of the same authors that I do. He reminded me last night of G.K. Chesterton's Christmas poems. And if you don't know who G.K. Chesterton is, I 
urge you to look him up. He is an early 20th century Christian apologist, thinker, author. Uh, the great thing about Chesterton is even if you're not a Christian or interested in his books, such as Orthodoxy, he wrote wonderful fiction as well. The Man Who Was Thursday is one of my favorite stories, bar none, top 10, easily. It's a very short story, very easy to read. He wrote the Father Brown Mysteries. So if you're into mysteries, those are fantastic too. And then on the other side, like I said, he also wrote about Christianity and faith. He wrote about myth. He wrote about culture, society, morality, marriage, progressivism, you name it, Chesterton addressed it. In fact, he has a book, an epic poem entitled The Ballad of the White Horse about Alfred, which I just discovered yesterday, actually, by accident. I didn't even know it existed. It was written very early in his, in his life, in his career, 1913, I believe, was when it was published. And for modern scholars, it's considered the last epic poem, the last epic British poem. And so I was knee deep in that last night and couldn't sleep because I was reading it. But if you're interested in epic poetry, especially the old Anglo-Saxon stuff, like the Battle of Malden, Beowulf, and so on, I highly recommend you check out The Ballad of the White Horse by G.K. Chesterton. It is available online if you want to check it out. But I advise you buy the hard co cover, hard copy edition of the book because, I don't know, I just like the tactile feel of a book. And if it's used, I actually like the smell of old books. I don't know, there's something enchanting about it for me, something mysterious and exotic, the smell of mildew and the sound of dry pages sliding off of each other and the feel of a hard bound book. I just, there's something about it. it since I was a kid, I've loved that. So rather than Jen go back on to myths and legends uh, for another episode and, and talk about addiction for another episode, I thought I'm just going to read to you and maybe comment along the way, maybe not. But I think that one of the things this time of year in particular that creeps up on me is how much I miss being a child at Christmas time. And this is a paradox for myself because as I've talked about on the show before, Christmas was one of the most violent, drunken times of the year. Uh, in my childhood. It's when my father and my uncles would drink until they passed out. And there'll be yelling and telling of old tales about their father who was an abusive alcoholic himself. And yet, I remember the cold because we lived in northern Minnesota. I remember the snow and the way it sparkled in the moonlight. And I remember the lights on the houses and the decorations in the front yards. And riding in the back seat of the car, wrapped up in my snowsuit or covered up in a big blanket sandwiched between Christmas presents and hors d'oeuvres that we were taking to my uncle Mike's house, the bottles of booze and the cases of beer that were in the back with me. There was that moment. There were many moments, but that one in particular, driving around at night, in the cold, the snow glittering in the moonlight, the crispness in the air, the cold on the tip of my nose and on my lips, but the warmth of being wrapped up in a snowsuit and snow boots and hat and scarf and mittens, being sandwiched between all those sundries. There were those moments, those pockets of time 
when the world was magical. And as an adult, we often ignore that, especially those of us who have children of our own. We forget in our jadedness that our children are tuned to what is magical and to what is enchanting. And it is very easy for us as parents, as jaded adults, busy getting ready for Christmas, running around, buying last minute items, planning trips, so on and so forth, getting ready to go to church. We forget that we are the, the heralds of that magic, of that enchantment. We are their guides into that realm. And so we can just as easily open the door to that for them as we can slam it in their face. And I think it's important then that at this time of year in particular, we as adults do a sobriety check, take a step back and take a look at whether we closed the door and locked it or not during the year. And if we have, reopen it. And if we haven't, make sure the door jam is stuck in place so that it can't close on us again. Because as I've talked about, that door, that enchantment, that stickiness that clings to the birth of Jesus at this time of year, even if you're a cultural Christian or not a Christian at all, there's a stickiness to the moment that persists no matter how much we work to get rid of it. You think about 2020 when state and federal governors were saying, stay at home for Christmas, don't go out, don't hold church services, don't celebrate Christmas. And people did. Even people that were in favor of the lockdowns and in favor of sheltering in place. There's something about Christmas for them that even if they can't name it, there's something that pulls them out and compels them to gather with others and to celebrate this time. For Christians, it's obvious. For those who are not, maybe it's not so obvious. But there's a stickiness to the moment. And that's magic. That's the enchantment. That's reality. And no matter how hard we try to shake it off, it sticks. And so I thought today, let's just read poetry. Let's read Christmas poems by Chesterton, who is in some ways a bridge between the ancient and the modern, because he, like Tolkien, despised modernity and progressive ideologies. And therefore, he did as much as humanly possible, as much as was within his power, to preserve the pre-modern, to preserve the medieval and the early medieval, to preserve the ancient. Because he recognized in them is a bridge to what was and what is. And once we lose our grasp on what was, we become lesser for it in the present tense, as I wrote about and posted on social media this morning. Which, by the way, if you want to read my prayers and my poems, if you want to read my meditations on everything from myth to faith to society to history to whatever, go and follow me on Instagram. That's where I'm at. You can follow me on my personal page, Warrior Priest Donovan Riley. You can follow me at my kind of author page, Reverend Donovan Riley. And then I got my podcast page, Warrior Priest Jim and Podcast. I have to keep them separated because I've got so much stuff in my head coming out every day that if I just sandwiched everything onto one Instagram page, it would just be a nonstop flow of posts. I'm kind of a hyperactive that way. 
So this first poem, Aletheia, A-L-E-T-E-I-A, Aletheia, is a poem by Chesterton, like I said, for Christmas. And, eh, let's just read it. What the hell? <laughs> Step softly under snow or rain to find the place where men can pray. The way is all so very plain that we may lose the way. Oh, we have learnt to peer and pore on tortured puzzles from our youth. We know all labyrinthine lore. We are the three wise men of yore, and we know all things but the truth. We have gone round and round the hill and lost the wood among the trees and learnt long names for every ill and served mad gods, naming still the Furies, the Eumenides. The gods of violence took the veil of vision and philosophy. The serpent that brought all men bail, he bites his own accursed tail and calls himself eternity. Go humbly, it has hailed and snowed, with voices low and lanterns lit. So very simple is the road that we may stray from it. The world grows terrible and white, and blinding white the breaking day. We walk, bewildered in the light, for something is too large for sight, and something much too plain to say. The child that was ere worlds begun, we need but walk a little way, we need but see a latch undone. The child that played with moon and sun is playing with a little hay. The house from which the heavens are fed, the old strange house that is our own, where trick of words are never said, and mercy is as plain as bread, and honor is as hard as stone. Go humbly, Humble are the skies, and low and large and fierce the star. So very near the manger lies, that we may travel far. Hark, laughter like a lion wakes, to roar to the resounding plain. And the whole heaven shouts and shakes, for God himself is born again, and we our little children walking through the snow and rain. And that is Alatea by G.K. Chesterton. The second poem I want to read by Chesterton is entitled The House of Christmas. All of these poems are available. They're published together in a book. You can find it on Amazon. But this is the house of Christmas, G.K. Chester's. There fared a mother, driven forth, out of an inn to Rome, in the place where she was homeless, all men are at home. 
the crazy stable close at hand with shaking timber and shifting sand grew a stronger thing to abide and stand than the square stones of Rome. For men are homesick in their homes and strangers under the sun, and they lay their heads in a foreign land whenever the day is done. Here we have battle and blazing eyes and chance and honor and high surprise. But our homes are under miraculous skies where the Yule tale was begun. A child in a foul stable where the beasts feed and foam, only where he was homeless are you and I at home. We have hands that fashion and heads that know, but our hearts we lost. How long ago? In a place no chart nor ship can show under the sky's dome. This world is wild as an old wives' tale, and strange the plain things are. The earth is enough, and the air is enough for our wonder and our war. But our rest is as far as the fire drake swings, and our peace is put in impossible things, where clashed and thundered unthinkable wings round an incredible star. To an open house in the evening, home shall men come, to an older place than Eden, and a taller town than Rome. To the end of the way of the wandering star, to the things that cannot be and that are, to the place where God was homeless and all men are at home. And that is The House of Christmas by G.K. Chesterton. And finally, A Christmas Carol by G.K. Chesterton. The Christ child lay on Mary's lap. His hair was like a light. Oh, weary, weary were the world, but here is all aright. The Christ child lay on Mary's breast. His hair was like a star. Oh, stern and cunning are the kings, but here the true hearts are. The Christ child lay on Mary's heart. His hair was like a fire. Oh, weary, weary is the world, but here the world's desire. The Christ child stood on Mary's knee. His hair was like a crown. And all the flowers looked up at him, and all the stars looked down. The shepherds went their hasty way and found the lowly stable shed where the virgin mother lay. And now they checked their eager tread for to the babe that at her bosom clung a mother's song the virgin mother sung. They told her how a glorious light streaming from a heavenly throng around them shone suspending night 
while sweeter than a mother's song. Blessed angels heralded the Savior's birth. Glory to God on high, and peace on earth. She listened to the tale divine, and closer still the babe she pressed. And while she cried, The babe is mine! The milk rushed faster to her breast. Joy rose within her like a summer's morn. Peace, peace on earth. The Prince of Peace is born. Thou mother of the Prince of Peace, poor, simple, and of low estate, that strife should vanish, battle cease, Oh, why should this thy soul elate? Sweet music's loudest note, the poet's story. Didst thou ne'er love to hear of fame and glory? And is not war a youthful king, a stately hero clad in mail? Beneath his footsteps laurels spring, him earth's Majestic monarchs hail, their friends, their playmate. And his bold, bright eye compels the maiden's love-confessing sigh. Tell this in some more courtly scene, to maids and youths in robes of state. I am a woman, poor and mean, and wherefore is my soul elate? War is a ruffian, all with guilt defiled, that from the aged father's tears his child. A murderous fiend, by fiends adored, he kills the sire and starves the son. The husband kills, and from her board steals all his widow's toil had won plunders God's world of beauty, rends away all safety from the night, all comfort from the day. Then wisely is my soul elate, that strife should vanish, battle cease. I am poor and of low estate, the mother of the Prince of Peace. Joy rises in me like a summer's morn, Peace, peace on earth, the Prince of Peace is born. And that is A Christmas Carol by Gilbert Keith Chesterton. Like I said, I think it's important for us, especially at this time of year, to take a step back, to stop, to take a breath, a deep breath that shrugs up our shoulders and when we exhale, causes them to drop. To remember that there is beauty in the world. There's poetry. There's art. There's love. There's conviction. There's faith and there's hope. It's there. It's not everywhere. It's not a reservoir that you can just walk down to with a bucket and gather it up. Sometimes it slows to a trickle 
sometimes, the worst of times, it's a drop. Just one drop at a time. But it's always there. Because in spite of all that we do to embrace the darkness, to treat the serpent as if he is eternal, immortal, and wise, and all-knowing, as much as we are homesick in our own homes, as much as we wage war rather than sow for peace, God is always there. The child in the foul stable is always there. The story that is ancient, so ancient that it was spoken before the worlds were created, before the universe was spun out, the story was still there. And that story became flesh and blood and was born of the virgin, whose name was Mary, Miriam, who lay on her lap, his throne, who fed at her breasts, who grew up before her eyes, who came to seek and save the lost sheep, who laid down his own life and shed his own blood so that his creation, which would not receive him, might be saved from the darkness. And so in that darkness, no matter how dark it may seem, no matter how oppressive it may become, no matter how afraid or how distressed or despairing we may become in that darkness, he is the light that scatters the darkness. And so in him, in that story, is the light and the life of all men and women, all children and adults, every person of every race, every culture, every creed. He is the light that shatters the darkness, that scatters fear and anxiety and despair. And so this time of year, there is hope because there is still love and there is still beauty and that love and that beauty and that life that we breathe in and exhale, it all comes from the same source. It all comes as a result of the same story being told for millennia. The same story that we tell today, the same story that we will tell tomorrow into eternity. It is the story of the story. It is the greatest story ever told. It is the story that eclipses all other stories. It is the story of hope and freedom and life, life in abundance. And I pray that my hope is that by reading these poems to you today and hopefully doing an adequate job of reading them, that they remind you if you've forgotten that there is a home for you where this story is told. And the door is always open. And it is a home full of enchantment and magic. It is full of stories of hope and triumph. 
It is a home that is full of brightness and light and cheer and celebration and struggle and worry and prayer. But there are so many people in the house, so many to help you pray, so many to help you get back up, so many that will share the burden with you. So don't forget the story. Don't stop telling the story. There are so many who are still in the darkness who have no hope. And we who walk in the light, who have seen the great light, it is for us to say, the door is open. All are welcome in this house. And if you don't know the way, we're more than happy to walk with you, hold your hand, carry you if need be, to show you there is something worth living for. There is something worth hoping in. And it begins with this story. So that's all I got today. I'm going to keep it short. So I hope this was helpful. I hope this inspires you. I hope this gives you hope. Because again, regardless of anything else, we always have Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. God bless you.